What's up, everyone? Thank you for making us a part of your Thursday night. Today, we are live with a debate. We're going to be talking about annihilationism versus eternal conscious torment. We have the dry apologist, Caleb Cumberland, and Ross Burns of Burns Eye View. Both of the links to their good stuff is in the description. But before we get started on the debate, if you could just, Caleb, just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're doing, things like that. All right. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So I have a YouTube channel, um, Dry Apologist. I host discussions on there and I'm interested in apologetics. I'm a practicing Catholic and that's pretty much it. Good stuff. What about you, Ross, over at Burns Eye View? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have a YouTube channel uh, focused mainly on Christian apologetics. Uh, I cover kind of a wide variety of issues, but I'm mostly focused on uh, critiquing uh, like the West, Western worldview and Western culture, especially secular humanism. Um, but I like discussions like this as well, um, you know, within Christendom. So that's fun. So yeah, definitely check out my channel. Uh, I have shorter videos on my channel for the most part, uh, like under 10 minutes. So um, yeah, if that's something you're interested in, definitely check it out. Yeah, I highly recommend both of these guys. They got some great stuff. So we're going to get this debate up and rolling. We're going to start with opening statements. Uh, Caleb's going to start us off. He takes the annihilate. Oh my gosh. I hope I can pronounce that word. Um, annihilation is in perspective. So you got 10 minutes, Caleb. Let's do it. All right. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So recently I started to lean more towards the annihilationist perspective. And my view pretty much is I'll acknowledge that Christian tradition seems to lean towards eternal conscious torment, including statements from the Catholic like church, which I'm a part of. However, I think the Bible most violationism, I don't hold to that view dogmatically, but I think it's the more plausible interpretation. It's also more in line with God's justice. And I think that statements um, within Christian tradition are for the large part um, can be harmonized with that perspective as well. And I think that when we look at scripture teaching um, eternal punishment, and that's usually been the statements down through the line within church tradition that is compatible with annihilationism because annihilationism affirms eternal punishment. The eternal punishment is that God will take souls that aren't saved out of existence. And I think that that's the more plausible perspective that scripture offers. And I'll offer a few points um, as to why. So the clearest statement is in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell or Gehenna. So the most straightforward interpretation here is that while humans can kill the body, God can kill both body or destroy both body and soul. It seems the logic of this statement is that God can do more than just kill the body. He can kill both the body and soul. It seems like a straightforward um, teaching of annihilationism, but we have to look at other passages as well. One of the strongest, uh, so my second point is that one of the strongest passages in favor of the view that Jesus taught eternal conscious torment, when we look at the context, it seems like it's actually more plausibly in favor of annihilationism. So Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So that passage 
sounds like it's teaching eternal conscious torment when it talks about the worm not dying and the fire not being quenched. But when we look at the passage from the Old Testament that Jesus is drawing upon, comes from Isaiah 66, 24, which is about the final judgment. It says, for just as, so this is in verse 22, actually, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, and all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. So the implication seems to be that these are bodies, these are people who have been conquered, they've been killed. The reason the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched is because their bodies are decomposing in the rotting grave. And it's, it's using symbolic language, but the, the implication is not that they're being tortured for all eternity, it's that they're conquered or destroyed for all eternity. And that's the context that Jesus is drawing upon when he talks about the worm not dying and the fire not being quenched. So the strong, what I think is the strongest verse that eternal conscious torment can draw upon from Jesus's teaching, when we look at the Old Testament context, it actually does not seem to affirm eternal conscious torment. And then my final point is that probably the strongest verse that in all of scripture that eternal conscious torment can draw upon comes from the book of Revelation where it talks about people being tormented in the lake of fire. And certainly, um, prima facie, that does seem to indicate or teach eternal conscious torment. However, when we look at the nature of the lake of fire in the book of Revelation, it's not so straightforward. In Revelation 20, verse 14, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Well, obviously, death and Hades are symbolic um, things. They're not going to literally be tortured in the lake of fire. It's more plausible that they're destroyed in the lake of fire because um, death and Hades come to an end. But if that's the case, then it seems uh, at least plausible that other people thrown into the lake of fire are rather destroyed. And that's why it's indicated as a second death rather than that they're literally tortured forever. It's rather using symbolic language of their destruction. So that's basically my case, those three points. I think the verses that support eternal conscious torment, when we look at the context, um, it doesn't seem like it supports it that strongly. And the verses that support, or at least the one in Matthew 28, I think is very clear. The logic just seems to teach annihilationism. So we're just reading scripture in the most straightforward manner. That's what it seems to say. And it also presents God in a more just picture and it makes more sense. So I think it's the more plausible perspective to lean towards. And that's my time. Thank you, Caleb. All right, we will turn this now to Ross here. You can, you have 10 minutes. All right, great. Uh, thanks, Caleb, for that good opening statement. Uh, I was really excited to take this debate. Um, because I knew it was against Caleb, and Caleb is now my arch rival. Because this is our second debate, so, so, uh, so I hope you're all rooting for me against Caleb. So uh, anyway, so my opening statement. Um, hope, it, hope it can be as cl clearly expressed as what Caleb just offered us. So uh, I'm going to go through basically two lines of reasoning 
I think first uh, from scripture, the better interpretation is one of an eternal consciousness to uh, to punishment. And then secondly, just kind of a uh, more moral reasoning process outside of scripture that I think um, leads us to the conclusion of eternal consciousness. So uh, though first I should probably clarify, I'm not in favor of the Dante's Inferno, you know, like with the, the devils and pitchforks, just like poking people, um, just kind of irritating them for all eternity. I think that scripture is much more ambiguous on what hell will be like. I think the, probably the best, uh, the best reasoning of it from my perspective seems like God will remove his hand of restraint and that human beings will be revealed as the monsters that they are. Uh, our abilities for coherent thinking, kindness, unselfishness will be gone. The worst of human beings is only that which will remain. And I think that is much more consistent with the torment expressed in scripture, that it's more passive on God's end, uh, that he's just letting human beings be what they are. And now the scripture justifications for the consciousness of it, I'm going to try and run through this as quickly as possible. No, I would, uh, I would affirm and agree with Caleb that there are a lot of passages, and he could have gone through much more in the New Testament, uh, that seem to indicate a destruction of a human being that seem to indicate that uh, they are no longer what they were, that there's a destruction, there's uh, of sorts. However, there are also verses that seem to indicate a prolonged consciousness to, uh, to the human experience in hell. Uh, and these are some of those verses. So in the Olivet Discourse is a great place to go. I think, I think Caleb mentioned a couple of verses from there. I'm not sure, but in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, uh, in 25, uh, Jesus talks about the uh, the eschaton of unbelievers in this way. He talks about how they're going to be, in Matthew 24, 51, they're going to be cut in pieces, put with the hypocrites, and in that place there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That to me doesn't sound so much like unconsciousness. It sounds like a conscious experience. Uh, moreover, in 25, 11, and 12, uh, the, the virgins come to Jesus and they say, uh, you know, Lord, Lord, open to us, the foolish virgins. And he says, I don't know you. And uh, so there's this there's this separation from Jesus and the unbelievers in that section. Uh, there's more weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew 25, 30. Uh, and then it rounds out at the end of Matthew 25 with uh, the eternal fire for the devils and his angels. And then... Uh, in 2546, eternal punishment, especially as contrasted with eternal life. Now, I don't understand why, uh, I suppose I could see how you could read that. The, the punishment is, uh, the punishment is a cessation of existence, but I just don't think that's consistent with uh, the contrast with eternal life, which is, you know, existence. Uh, and then moving downwards, so I think the use of basanas and basanamas in Luke 16, 28, and then Revelation 9, 5, 14, 11, uh, 18, 7, 10, 15, I think that is, uh, that is best explained not by, uh, not by cessation of existence. I have my, my lexicon open here. Uh, the, what is this, Bill Mounts? 
the, the analytical Greek New Testament lexicon. I think it's Bill Mouse's. And he defines basanas as, uh, <clears throat> let's see here, an examination of a person, especially by torture, torture, term, torment, and severe pain. Um, that's his definition. I think that's pretty consistent with what we see in those passages. Uh, in Revelation 9, 5, and th this is not in hell. This is describing the, uh, the, uh, the tribulation. Uh, it says that they were allowed to torment them. Torment would be basanas right there. Torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And that same word used in that context, which is not talking about uh, which is not talking about the, the end times, is used in 1411, where the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So the use of basanas, which, is also, shows, which also shows up in Luke 1628, uh, the parable, well, not necessarily a parable, the story of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man, you remember, who's... Uh, who's in a place of torment and he looks up at Lazarus, the poor beggar who used to live outside of his house. And he's just in this agony. Um, that word, same word is used in 1411 in Revelation. And then finally in Revelation 20, uh, I think this was touched on briefly, but we, I'm sure we can get into it more. So we have here um, in Revelation 2010, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur here the beast and the false, uh, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then it talks about at the end of that section in 13, 14, and 15, how the, uh, how the unbelievers will be added to their company and they will experience a similar fate. And it is true that it says that they were death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, uh, which I, I mean, I don't think they will literally be picked up and thrown, but the, the idea is that there's not going to be any more experience in Hades, an in, in intermediary place, uh, and there will no more be death. This is the constant. This is the last thing. This is it. This is the lake of fire. So I think uh, certainly there are passages that talk about destruction, and I like C.S. Lewis's reasoning that uh, destruction of a thing doesn't necessarily mean cessation of existence. Uh, he talks about how like when you throw, I think it's in the problem of pain, how when you throw wood into the fire and destroy it, you're not left with nothing. You're left with uh, ash and, and heat uh, and CO2. I don't think he uses CO2, but you get the picture. So when a human being is destroyed, I think it's not cessation of existence. I think it's this kind of uh, passive, uh, passive torment on God's part, this kind of removal of his hand of restraint, and they're left to be what they are. And I think that's, that's, that's the consistent reading of scripture in my view. And now finally, I've got two minutes left. I'm going to try and uh, go through the uh, non-scriptural arguments. So I do agree that it would be unjust for human judges to deliver life sentences for minor crimes. Uh, so like for if you jaywalked and you got a life sentence or or a capital punishment, that would not be very fair. So then why does our sin, which is finite, merit an infinite punishment? Uh, my arguments would be 
that it's the nature of God's law and his character and his honor that is infinite. So our crimes, I think, should be proportionate to the thing that we have offended. So I think that that renders an infinite punishment. Uh, and it, and I'm, I'm also not clear if Caleb is on the side that there will be some punishment or whether, uh, like after in, in hell and Gehenna, whether there will be some punishment or whether it's just cessation of existence uh, right after the final judgment. I would like a little bit more clarity on that so I can properly represent you. Um, if, if, however, there's cessation of existence, I would just invite you to imagine a guy like Pol Pot, uh, the awful dictator of Cambodia, lived uh, 73 years. He was uh, in full power for about four years in the 70s. And in his reign of terror, he killed about 25% of all Cambodians. And I've got uh, excerpts here of the things that he did in Cambodia. Uh, I mean, just awful. The, he had prisoners who would try to commit suicide from the torture that they were experiencing. They used spoons to try and kill themselves. They had a tree where executioners would uh, beat the children and infants of uh, the people whom they imprisoned um, as a way of just retribution. And I would submit to you that a man as evil as Pol Pot, it is not just retribution for him to simply experience cessation of consciousness. There should, I think, definitely be more of a punishment than that. All right, perfect, perfect timing, actually. Uh, now we'll turn it to Caleb for five minutes for a first rebuttal. Before we do that, I just wanna say we are doing a Q&A, so if you have questions as these things going, keep going, put a Q in front of your question, and we'll ask that during that 30 minute period. But five minutes for you, Caleb. All right, thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm open, like there could, I think it's plausible there is some kind of punishment um, before somebody goes out of existence. So like, I take it as a parable in Luke 16. So the story of um, Abraham and Lazarus and the rich man. So yeah, it is a place of torment, but it, it could very well be a parable in that, but also it doesn't teach that it's eternal torment either. You know, and under Catholic teaching, it could very well be a type of purgatory. So I don't think that it teaches um, eternal conscious torment. And then, let's see. So weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, that could be indication of the punishment um, when somebody's being annihilated. It doesn't teach that that goes on for eternity. And in Matthew 25, you know, the other parable where it says, Lord, Lord, open up. And he says, I never knew you. I mean, again, I take that as a parable, and that could also be, you know, the scene before they're annihilated. So I don't think any of those passages from Jesus teach anything about, you know, the torment or punishment. It is an eternal punishment because they go out of existence, but that it's an eternal torment. I think the one verse that you get that, or maybe the two verses you get that from would be in the book of Revelation that were mentioned. So, and I do grant that, yeah, they do sound like they they say that um so in the smoke of their so one of them is the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever they have no rest day and night those who worship the beast in his image but you know as others have pointed out you know if we look at the context or at least the possible context from that for that from isaiah chapter 34 it's talking about the land of edom that was destroyed in the Old Testament, says that smoke will go up forever from generation to generation, and it'll be desolate. So it's not literally 
smoking forever, it's that its destruction is for all eternity. So it could be indicating that. And then I, again, I grant that Revelation 20.10 on its own, it does sound like when it says they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever, but that whole context about the lake of fire, um, you know, is very symbolic. Again, like, you know, that Hades and death are thrown into it. It's hard to draw definitive conclusions there. And I think Jesus' teaching is more authoritative and clear on the point. And again, it doesn't seem to be there's any clear indication. In fact, I think when we think about the logic of Jesus' statements, they don't teach eternal conscious torment, like when we look at the passages that I had quoted earlier. So I think that covered most of the verses that Ross brought up. Now, I know you mentioned that a crime should be um, commensurate, or punishment should be commensurate with the crime, and I agree. I think you know, there could be some physical pain before somebody goes out. And the, but, you know, God is also merciful. And I think torturing somebody forever, even for something, you know, really horrible, that just seems to exceed justice and mercy. And that's where I, you know, just philosophically don't find eternal conscious torment to be plausible. I do like some of the ideas that C.S. Lewis had, and those are the ideas I used to hold. But I feel like when you follow his logic, and either you know the problem of pain or the great divorce, it ends up leading to annihilationism or universalism in order to make sense of it. I just think that allowing somebody to exist forever, like Randall Rousers emphasized this point, allowing somebody to exist forever in a state of unhappiness, even if it's not torture, that just seems unjust. And I don't see a lot of warrant from scripture for that. So that would be my response so far. Awesome. Thank you. All right, we'll set the timer for five minutes. Whenever you're ready, Ross, we'll get it started. Okay, great. Uh, thanks for thanks for that rebuttal, Caleb. I, I appreciate, uh, I always appreciate talking to you and, and hearing your debates because you're the least mean person on the internet. Uh, I mean, I'd like to think that Zach and I are a close two and three, but you're you're definitely the least mean person on the internet. So it's always fun to talk to you. I appreciate you. Um, just a couple a couple answers I wanted to a couple things I wanted to bring up. Uh, so so then I do understand that uh, you leave the possibility open of some kind of punishment uh, after the final judgment, which which is which is good to know. Um, the thing that I don't understand is when a person goes into hell, uh, when a person goes into Gehenna or, or the place where they're going to be tormented, won't they, and at this point, they're, they're severed from the grace of God. God's uh, common restraining grace of the evil of human beings is no longer with them, obviously, at that point. So won't they continue to sin? Won't they continue to, to merit God's wrath and his judgment? Uh, I mean, I think, I think they would. I don't understand uh, if we're saying that as soon as they go into the place of uh, temporary torment, uh, would they suddenly be sanctified? Would they suddenly be able to love God with all their mind, heart, soul, and strength and their neighbor as themselves? I don't think so. So I think it doesn't make sense to say that uh, they'll just be punished for what they did here on earth because they're going to be sinning in that place as well and continually earning punishment. Uh, and... <clears throat> So I think that's a problem that I would like to I'd like to talk a little bit more about. Uh, and then second issue 
the, the thing that really interested me about this conversation, this debate, was that uh, you're a practicing Catholic. Um, like with a with a Protestant or something like that, I can definitely understand this more, but I don't understand how a practicing Catholic can be an annihilationist. Um, for instance, in the catechism in, uh, I don't know how you would say that, I, I am not fluent in Catholicese, but in 1021 or 1021 in the catechism, it actually says that uh, the parable in uh, <coughs> Luke 16 is about, uh, let me just read it here, the parable of the poor man Lazarus and the words of Christ on the cross to the good thief, uh, as well as other New Testament texts, speak of a final destiny of the soul, a destiny which can be different for some and for others. So it is talking about, according to the catechism, it is talking about this final destination um, and, and not anything else. So that there is torment going on in this final destination. And I, I guess the other issue that I would have here is seems like there's just some, some major epistemological issues that we have here. Because it seems to me from the Roman Catholic's uh, position that the church is the infallible interpreter. So we can have our various interpretations, but from the perspective of a Roman Catholic, it seems to me that many interpretations are, are settled, uh, that they're, you know, that they're already determined. In fact, that's one of the biggest arguments against uh, Protestants is that we, you guys, you know, you have all these different interpretations. How are you supposed to know? We have a source of infallible interpretation. We have um, tradition and the bishops together and the, and the, uh, the papacy and they can tell us which interpretations are right. So I don't understand how a, a believing Roman Catholic can go against what seems to be the clear testimony of, uh, uh, I mean, I've got some stuff here. What seems to be the clear testimony of people like Pope Pius, um, what seems to be the clear testimony of the Fourth Lateran Council, uh, what's in the catechism and, and all that kind of stuff. And then finally, if I can squeeze this in, I don't understand how you can rectify things like the existence of purgatory and the differentiation between mortal and venial sins with the idea of annihilation. Because uh, it sounds like people, Christians in purgatory would be experiencing more punishment or the equal punishment to, uh, to an unbeliever. That's what it sounds like to me. Because what would be the difference between the temporal and eternal punishment at that point from uh, venial and mortal sin. If, because um, they're supposed to be an analogy, they're supposed to be analogous, right? It seems to me. So I don't understand how this uh, mortal sin punishment, this eternal punishment merited by mortal sin can be paid off temporally. That doesn't make sense to me. And I would love to talk more about it more in our conversation. Awesome. Thank you both. Uh, thank you both for staying prompt time-wise. So that is our opening statements and our rebuttals. We are going to transition now to 30 minutes of just a live discussion between Ross and Caleb. I'll leave it to you guys, but I do want to remind you, after this 30 minutes, we will be doing a Q&A. So I've seen some, a few questions, but if you have questions, just put a Q in front of your question in the live chat, and we'll get to those in 30 minutes. But for now, I'll set the timer, and it's all you guys. All right. Thanks. So on it. Well, I'll respond to a few points and then we'll take it from there. So in terms of like um, the catechism and Catholic church teaching, yeah, I mean, I grant the church, the, the Catholic church does not teach annihilationism, but 
that doesn't mean, in my view, that it teaches that annihilationism is false. So you ask an average Catholic, and this was, um, you know, on a popular stream the other day, a Catholic apologist said, you know, somebody can't be an annihilationist to be a Catholic. I just don't think that's correct. And basically the church doesn't settle that many issues. And when we look at the language of the catechism, certainly it teaches hell, eternal punishment, but those are compatible with annihilationism. And church teaching has developed over the centuries. And I wouldn't be surprised if in a couple, I mean, it may take centuries that the church eventually does teach annihilationism. Um, I've looked up most of the statements from the popes down through the centuries, and most of them at least seem to be compatible with annihilationism. But again, papal statements even can get clarified over time. It's more of what's the, the essence of the church teaching. And I know that gets into a, another issue. But, you know, looking at this passage that you referenced in um, paragraph 1021, um, a destiny which can be different for some and for others. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. There can be different amounts of punishment, but it doesn't, at least as far as I can tell, seem to say that they'll be tortured forever. Or I know in your view, it's like, you know, allowing people to like hand it over forever. But anyways, that this, this will be going on forever with some kind of conscious experience. And that's what I'll say on that. And then I'll get to your other issues, but I want to let you respond to that. Uh, so then 1022, the, the paragraph right after that, um, each man receives his eternal retribution in his immortal soul at the very moment of death in a particular judgment um, that ref, uh, refers his life to Christ, either entrance into the blessedness of heaven through purification or immediately um, or immediate in everlasting damnation. That immortal soul part seems like it doesn't square with conditional immortality uh, can you can you clarify that if I'm misrepresenting you or misunderstanding something? Sure. Yeah, I mean, so with annihilationism oftentimes is um, also called conditionalism, that somebody has an immortal soul, but that's still conditional on God's, you know, um, sustaining power. So when the catechism says somebody's immortal soul, I don't doubt that the author may have had um, the idea in mind that that person would have a conscious experience, but does the, you know, for imagining or holding, or at least I hold the view that, you know, the Holy Spirit is what the Holy Spirit is teaching through the teachings. And technically somebody can have an immortal soul and still be destroyed because God um, takes that immortal soul. It's conditionally immortal. So, you know, technically it's not incompatible with annihilationism. Did you, so I understand conditional immortality is usually a little bit different. Um, usually they would say, like we're not immortal souls. It's God gives uh, eternality or immortality to individuals at the at the final judgment or something like that. So we, so would you be uh, parting ways with uh, a gentleman like I, th I think I'm hopefully I'm not you know misrepresenting it, but a gentleman like Chris Date or Randall Rouser or people like them? Would you be parting ways with them in their understanding of conditional immortality? Um, I haven't studied their views enough. My understanding is Mando Rouser doesn't necessarily um, believe in an afterlife apart from the resurrection. So, I mean, in that sense, it would be different. But, um, I mean, I'm looking at this as, you know, the soul is immortal, 
unless God takes it out of existence. So it, I'm looking at it. I don't, I don't know those, you know, their views well enough to okay. comment on it. Okay. All right. That's fair. Um, and then can you clarify this for me? I'm very confused as to the issues of mortal and venial sin, purgatory. Um, I just don't understand how the people who wrote uh, like at the council of Trent or uh, Oh gosh, where was the other place? Florence, I think. Hopefully I'm not getting that wrong. Uh, the people who wrote those councils certainly had in their minds um, that people who don't make it into purgatory are going to be tormented and suffering forever because of their mortal sin. Like that would be the difference between mortal and venial sin. Venial sin, you have to pay for it temporarily and mortal sin, you have to pay for it forever. Am I, can you clarify something for me there? Cause I, I would, I'm going to be quoting a lot from this stuff, I guess, but uh, you're definitely more of an expert on this stuff than I am. I, I have not grown up as a uh, a Roman Catholic. Yeah. Well, and the things that I say, I mean, a lot of Catholics will probably think I'm like heretical or something for the things that I'm saying, but I'm more trying to figure out, you know, recognizing that church teaching can develop some, you know, the church has developed views on um, non-Christians or non-Catholics and non-Christians being able to be saved. That's something the Catholic Church has developed its language on um, over the centuries. So I'm arguing this could be a point that the church can develop some on too without contradicting, you know, the substance of the doctrine. But a mortal sin would be a sin that completely separates somebody from God. So like really serious sins like that are listed in scripture. But a venial sin would be something that isn't as serious, but, um, you know, is a bad habit that somebody should break, but they're not completely separated from God. So if somebody commits a mortal sin, then that would merit, and it goes unconfessed, that would merit damnation, but damnation can still mean annihilation and not eternal um, conscious torment. Now, I know you made the point about purgatory. There are different interpretations, though, over what purgatory consists of. So it could be a type of physical punishment, but that would be a corrective kind of rehabilitating punishment. So I know, you know, there's a verse in scripture about God correcting his children, chastising his children. So that kind of, that would fit well with that idea, you know, that God is rehabilitating those in purgatory, but the people who aren't going to be reformed, it, it really doesn't make sense to torture them forever um, because they're not going to enter into eternal life anyways. But um, so that's how I'd look at that. I don't know that purgatory is physical torment. The church, as far as I know, doesn't really have a lot of clear teaching on what the experience of purgatory consists of. Rather, it's just a, a type of purification. So maybe you can, can you clarify? Well, so I, I think Trent, I have it right in front of me. Um, Canon 30 says, if anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received, the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is so blotted out for any repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be paid uh, either in this world or any other in purgatory before access can be opened to the kingdom of heaven and uh, let him be anathema. Or I think it says anathema sit. That's a lot cooler. I wish we said that. Um, but what I, so it sounds more like in, in the council of Trent, it's that uh, the punishment that you're experiencing in purgatory is payment of your debt. So it doesn't sound so much like rehabilitation. Uh, it sounds more like uh, uh, like punitive. It sounds more like you're you're paying something off. Um, and then here's what I don't understand. So 
it sounds like what you're saying, and I think what's consistent with annihilation in general, that the torment in hell, no, yeah, well, maybe you can clarify this for me. Torment in hell would be uh, worse than, would be more unjust than just cessation of existence, just annihilation. Is that fair? Yeah, eternal torment, yeah. Right. Okay, so uh, well, how long would, that might be kind of a weird question, but how long would the torment have to go for it to be worse than cessation of existence? Oh, I mean, I don't know. So okay, yeah, there would yeah. be no way to determine that, of course. But I mean, the idea, though, that it would go on. So, like, I know you made the point, like, well, if somebody, you know, what if somebody in hell keeps sinning? I don't, yeah, I don't doubt that. However, would it be just to allow somebody to keep sinning? I mean, if this is literally going to go on ad infinitum, I mean, do you think they could stop sinning and then they could go to heaven? Or, you know, the, the new heavens and the new earth, you think that would be possible in your view? Oh, no, no, certainly not. Because um, right. I think only someone can do that by the, you know, by the uh, invigoration, let's say, of the Holy Spirit. And that's certainly not happening uh, in hell, you know. So I think people are going to continue to deserve punishment in hell. Would you Would you disagree with that? Well, that's my point. Like, you know, they're, God knows that they're not going to go to heaven. So, and they're going to keep sinning. So why let that go on forever? I mean, no doubt. Like, why not just, you know, end it at some point? I mean, why, why allow people to keep sinning? I think it's to, uh, now this may be where our theology's part more significantly, but I think God allows sin to occur partially for, uh, in one case, for the uh, demonstration of his grace, like it says in Ephesians 1, but also partly um, in the in the reprobate, as it says in Romans nine, to display the glorious nature of his wrath. So, I mean, you could ask yourself, why did Paul Pot? Why didn't God stop him after the first person that he had tortured and killed, and along with his whole family? Why did he let it go on for uh, for four years? And then he was in a leadership position until the nineties in uh, in his uh, in the Communist Party of Cambodia. Why did, I think the same question still remains there. Why did God allow this evil um, to go on for so long if it was inconsistent with his character? Which, I mean, I don't think it is. I think Romans 9 answers both of those questions. Yeah, we're going to have a different view on that. I'm just going to start getting into some of the stuff we've discussed before and the problem of evil and things, which will be its own debate. But I would, just a short answer, I would say like, well, this this is our time to make a choice and god does allow us to exercise our free will right now so he does allow sin to go on but it's for a finite amount of time and i don't object to the idea that hell could be a finite amount of time of sinning and punishment but it's the eternity part that just seems excessive to me and that's where it just it just seems like that yeah that just goes too far um that would actually be really interesting. I've never thought about that before. If you wanted to have that, I don't know if it would be so much a debate as like a discussion or something like that on our different answers to the problem of evil. But I think that would be fascinating. Uh, maybe we could set something up for the future. But um, so going back to the Catholic catechism uh, in 1035 or 1035, uh, I mean, you're, you're the, you know, you're the cool Roman Catholic. What would you say? 1035 or 1035 or something else? 
Oh, I don't know. 1035 rolls off the tongue better. Oh, so yeah. Okay. All right. We're all settled. We, ha we have settled one issue in this debate. When you're referencing things in the catechism, it's, it's 1035. Okay. That's good. Um, so in 1035, it says that the teaching of the church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity, uh, which they go to immediately after um, in the death of the souls and they uh, die in a state of mortal sin, you know, all that kind of stuff. They go to the um, punishments of hell, eternal fire, that sort of stuff. So the catechism says that the existence of hell and its eternity are affirmed by the teaching of the church. Now, this is something I still, I still can't square uh, if the church is an infallible interpreter and it can be wrong on an issue such as this, and I don't think this would be a developmental thing. I think this would be a, a not a kind of thing. Either hell is eternal or it's not eternal. It seems to me. Um, so I don't, I don't understand how you can be a Roman Catholic and an annihilationist it just seems either or to me. Uh, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of Catholics would agree with you on that point. But um, yeah, hell is eternal, but hell is eternal annihilation. That's just what hell is, is in my view. So when it's talking about hell, it's drawn upon the language of Scripture. And I think when Scripture is referring to hell, it's talking about that final destruction. And the church, in my view, just hasn't clarified beyond that. Mm -hmm. Even when it says, like, at the end of the paragraph, um, where, uh, well, actually not the end of the paragraph, the end of that sentence where it says, where they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire, it seems like in the active present tense, like something that would continue to go on. It doesn't sound like uh, it's that one, it's not in the, English doesn't have an aorist tense, but uh, we can still convey the idea somewhat. Um, it just doesn't seem like if, or, or to put it this way, if the church can change its teaching to that much of a degree from, uh, you know, hell is going to go on forever. Hell is not going to go on forever. If it can change to that severe of a degree uh, where like, you know, where, you know, where punishment is going on forever. If the change can, if the church can change its teaching to that much of a degree, then how do we know? Uh, how do we know that we have the infallible interpretation now on anything? Yeah. Well, there's a few points there. So I don't um, know Latin and I don't know, you know, I believe the catechism was, you know, translated from Latin, but I do see that it says they suffer the punishments of hell. And I agree with that, whatever that in, whatever that ends up being, it's, you know, some kind of uh, torment or something. And then, you know, annihilation. And then it puts in quotations, eternal fire. So yeah, the eternal lake of fire, which I view as eternal destruction. So I, Again, I see the language as being compatible with annihilationism. Now, in regards to your question about, you know, church teaching changing, I mean, that's a good question. That's, um, you know, a different question than the debate. But, um, yeah, it's a good question. I think that the substance, so as it was, it was said at Vatican II, that, you know, the substance of the, the church teaching remains true, but the way it gets communicated can change over time. And I think that that's true for all Christians. I mean, I, I think that this issue of hell has developed over time. And I think like, you know, the Trinity is something that's been developed over time. And I know you'll say not in a contradictory manner, but that gets into like, well, what is the, the true substance or essence 
of the teaching. And I, I just see room for development here, but I know we'll probably also have a, a disagreement perhaps on you know the nature of inspiration and infallibility and such, um, but yeah. Uh, what what is your that would probably be very important. I don't I don't mean to throw out uh, I don't mean to throw out like red herrings like oh you know that you know the church how can you trust it it can change uh, I I don't mean them to be red herrings I don't intend for them to be I just think it's very relevant for each of us. Uh, for the system that we're using in this in this conversation. So can you explain a little bit your, if you, if you can, if it's too much for the context of a 30 minute uh, dialogue, can you explain in somewhat brief details your view on inspiration and infallibility? Yeah, it's not something that I have um, the perfect answer to because I think that we have faced the same problem with scripture too. So. I think that, you know, scripture seems to, um, as a whole, teach annihilationism. But like, for example, if we're looking at a, a verse in Revelation, that does sound like it teaches eternal conscious torment. You know, some would say, like, that would be an example of a contradiction or such. I don't have, like, a hardline position on inerrancy. So, um, but again, that's going to get into another comp. But that's kind of how I look. The only reason I bring that up is because that's kind of how I look at church teaching as well. It's like, what is the substance? of the teaching what seems to be you know we have that's where we have to apply reason and different um we have to draw upon different tools to figure out what is god trying to communicate and it's not always straightforward so there could you could hold different verses of scripture side by side and it does seem like it's a contradiction in the same with you know catholic church statements but in my view it's like well what is the the true essence of that teaching and it's, it's a messy situation, and I think that's just the boat that Christians are in. But, um, but yeah, that, that would probably be a, a whole other debate, but that's where I'm coming from on that. Okay, all right. I appreciate that. But, I mean, you would recognize that, uh, like, very not uh, up for debate within Roman Catholic tradition and, and doctrine and catechism and all that kind of stuff would be the infallibility and... Uh, complete harmonization ability. Wow, that's not a word of uh, of scripture. Yeah, at the substantial level, though. So I keep bringing that point up, but I think it is just a really important point. That I mean, I'll be honest. Most Catholic or a lot of Catholics, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of Catholics may not acknowledge this point. But like, there, this was a statement from the Pope, who's now a canonized saint at Vatican II. The substance of the ancient ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing and the way it's presented is another and it's the latter that must be taken into great consideration with patience if necessary everything being measured in the forms and proportions of a magisterium which is predominantly pastoral in character so i see that as um, indicating there's room for development and of course that vatican II. There wasn't actually as radical a development as a lot of people think, but there was some development in church teaching. And I don't look at that as a contradiction. I mean, I think scripture develops theology as we move through it. And I think church tradition, you know, whether you're Catholic or non-Catholic, I think has developed. And I think there's room for development to, to think that it's um, inspiration and inerrancy and infallibility is so monolithic that there's not any room for um, you know, development and our understanding, I just think is a mistake, but, um, 
you know, whether or not, well, I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Do you see anything analogous in, uh, with the old Testament? Cause I do agree that, uh, with, from old Testament to new Testament, there is progressive revelation. Uh, like the Trinity would be a perfect example. You can't get a very clear, um, assortment of scriptures from the old Testament to prove the Trinity, uh, that, that comes with the new Testament. Um, do you see anything analogous in uh, from the transition to the old and to the new with something like, um, and you can you can correct me on this too, something like the anathemas and the Council of Trent? Uh, I mean, on someone who would deny purgatory being anathema, uh, like uh, anathema sit on him or something like that. I love that. Um, and Vatican II, where it seems to kind of do away with a lot of that. Um, that seems to me not like a development, but like a contradiction. Do you see anything analogous from the Old Testament to the New Testament like that? Yeah, so there's several points there. So just to clarify, I don't know if you're indicating this, but like Vatican II didn't do away with purgatory, okay? But I would say... Oh, no, know, no, sorry. I oh, I, I was just saying not, the, not that it did away with purgatory, that Council of Trent pronounced anathemas on people who deny purgatory, and it seemed like Vatican II did away with the anathemas. Uh, so like, not necessarily that if you deny purgatory, uh, you're, you're going to hell. It, it seemed to have done away with a little bit of that. And, and um, it went broader than that too. Would, would you disagree with that? Cause again, I yield uh, my Catholicism expertise to you. Yeah. And I'm not an expert on, you know, Catholic dogmas and such, but I think, I mean, I have a pretty good grasp, but no, I mean, Vatican II didn't do away with anathemas for the Council of Trent. There was some development for, to me, one of the clearest examples was how the church understands those who aren't formally Catholic or formally Christian, could they still be saved? And the church said, you know, somebody could be saved by desire, you know, if they had known, if, if they had better knowledge, they would become Catholic. So they're a Catholic by desire. And that type of teaching was a development and you know seen as a harmonization but still it was a development on earlier language so that would be an example but the idea of like doing away with the doctrine altogether like the church no longer teaches purgatory or something like that that wasn't the case so and that's where i'm seeing like you know it's a difference between kind of the substance and you know the accidents to use some catholic language you know there can be some sort of secondary features that can develop but like the core doctrine i would say does not um, change. And I would say here, you know, the core teaching of hell, I don't think would be changed by adopting annihilationism. It's just changing how we view what that punishment of hell is. And to me, that's just changing a secondary feature of the tradition, which really hasn't clarified. So I'm just saying there could be some more clarification on what that punishment is. But you asked for an example in scripture. I mean, there are some mate, and these points we may not agree on, and this could be another discussion, but there are some major developments from the Old Testament um, to the New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament seems to affirm the existence of other gods, for example. That's a development. We may disagree on that, but that to me would be a clear development. I mean, to me, the morality between the Old Testament and New Testament um, definitely changes. Um, the view of the afterlife changes. In the Old Testament, they just have this view of Sheol, then you get this view of a resurrection and perhaps a view of, you know, conscious existence before the resurrection. These are developments that occur 
that some would argue are in contradiction with the earlier parts of the Bible. I would say they're just developments that, you know, God progressively reveals more theology um, through the biblical authors. And I think he could do the same thing through the Catholic Church and outside the Catholic Church, too, and, and other and Protestant traditions. But since I'm a Catholic, I would say, you know, the, the Catholic Church um, has a greater you know, teaching authority. But hopefully that made sense. Um, I think my eyes almost got stuck in the back of my head when you said the existence of other gods thing, but um, that would be a good conversation. Well, if you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been, I think I've been grilling you for a long time on like, you know, like stuff from like the 1200s. And do you have any questions for me? I feel like I've kind of, uh, I've been asking the majority of them here. Yeah. And I hope I haven't like unsettled people listening. They don't have to agree with my points, but that's just where I'm coming from since you asked. So I know a lot of these things, you know, spiral into other things and, you know, get into other issues, which we can have its own debate on. I don't think I had any other questions. I think I responded to most of the points I wanted to from what you said. Um, I guess one question I'd have is how I know there are different interpretations, like with everything, but like uh, Matthew 10, 28, to me, that teaches annihilationism, but I know you can't just take a verse on its own. And there are discussions about how to translate it and such, but like, how do you interpret that verse? Uh, let me take, let me just pull it up here and make sure I'm not thinking something. All right. Oh, okay. So yeah, the destroy the body in uh, both soul and body in hell. Um, let me just grab here that and doo, doo, doo. so the the word for destroy there is it uh apoc uh apoc apocteno that's how you say it aha uh -huh, see okay cool and uh it can mean to kill in any way or metaphorically to extinguish or abolish um procure eternal misery, it looks like. And uh, that's Thayer's Greek lexicon that I'm uh, referencing. So I mean, it has a pretty, um, it has a pretty wide range of use. Uh, it's used about, looks about 75 times in the New Testament. And uh, it has like usage, it has in its semantic range, everything from to kill in any way whatsoever, to destroy or to, um, or to extinguish. So I, I mean I think there's a there's certainly room in uh, I don't have a cool like you know one word name for myself but the eternalists would that be a good I don't know I'm not sure we'll we'll brainstorm later some some terms there seems to be room in that sentence uh, ECT okay uh, ECT that sounds pretty good I'm okay with ECT um, that's fine. So it seems to be room within the ECT perspective where this apocteno uh, uh, can, uh, like I talked about before, my C.S. Lewis's analogy with destruction and wood, um, destruction doesn't necessarily mean, or death or killing doesn't necessarily mean cessation of existence. I think it would have to be demonstrated that that's the case, that uh, that's what it means in the New Testament or in other Greek literature. Um, it, it doesn't seem to mean that uh, within the New Testament at large. It doesn't seem to mean 
cessation of existence, even if it's in hell. So what, what would be your thoughts on that response? Sure. And that makes sense. And I mean, I held that type of position at one time and I don't, so I can't comment on the Greek, but just looking at the verse. So when I'm looking at scripture, um, I tend to look at it as what's the most straightforward. What do I think that the speaker, um, Jesus or the, the author, you know, is probably intending to communicate because they could have said it in a different way had they wanted to. Now, the logic is the first statement, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. So it's it's transitive. And then the follow up is, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. To me, the logic seems to be that humans can um, affect the body, but not the soul. But God, he can do uh, both to both. And I know you can interpret it as, well, it's this endless kind of destruction of both. But to me, the straightforward logic seems to be you know, kill body, but you can't kill the soul, but God, he can kill both body and soul. I know a different word seems to be used, but um, to me, the straightforward logic just seems to be annihilationism. And without a further reason to think it's teaching more than that, that just seems to be the, the default interpretation. And then, but that, that's just where I'm coming from on that. We have about 30 seconds left. So I don't know if you want to finish up what's going on here and we'll move on to some Q&A. Um, uh, goodness. Oh, I had something. Um, <clears throat> see if I can get it back. See if I can get it back. Um, oh, the straightforward. Oh, so if, if we're going to look at, cause you, you, uh, said exactly the right thing. We should be trying to figure out what Matthew wanted to communicate in that section. I don't think that particular verse is a teaching on the nature of heaven and hell. I think it's a teaching on the, the nature of uh, the limitations on what a person can destroy as opposed to limitations on what uh, God can destroy. So a, a human being can't affect your, can't destroy your soul. That's, that's off limits to him. So I think that's the point of the, of the text there. I think we're going beyond it, um, trying to get into the nitty gritty, but if we're really trying to understand what was Matthew's main intention, I don't think it was to provide commentary on the, uh, on the ontological realities of hell. All right. Um, you good, Caleb? You guys good? Yeah. I'm, I'm All right. good. I'm so good. We, All right. We'll transition here to some Q&A. I'll set the timer for 30 minutes. We have a few questions to go through, and then you can always add more, and I think we'll get, be able to get through a bunch of them as we get going. So we'll just start pulling questions up. The first comes from the Wild Hog King. He says, are Satan and his demons annihilated or do they face eternal conscious punishment? So I'm guessing this question is directed towards Caleb. Um, yeah, I would say they're annihilated. So scripture talks about, you know, them being thrown into, or at least the, you know, Satan thrown into the lake of fire. So, you know, the same principle would apply. Okay. Short and sweet and great. Uh, next question comes from Daniel Boone. I'm guessing it's not the real Daniel Boone, but um, with the, he says, with the cross, we saw God's justice and mercy both satisfied. Should we expect both justice and mercy to be satisfied with the afterlife? If so, how could God, God do this on non-annihilationism? Um. 
Okay, so that, I guess that's for you, Russ. Uh, I mean, I can certainly comment on that. I don't think, I mean, I think the sacrifice of Jesus, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus was an infinite payment, uh, though he only suffered for, uh, uh, I don't know how long, about 12 hours or so, three hours on the cross, but his, his um, you know, the beatings he experienced earlier than that. The God-man suffering is infinite in its value. Uh, it's an amazing thing that God himself came to take the place of sinners in his suffering. And I don't see how that is in any way proportional to um, <clears throat> to cessation of existence or even to a brief period, a relatively brief period of paying off uh, of sin and punishment. I, I don't see how those things are analogous. It seems to me that the atonement is infinite. And uh, so the payment of our debt and our penalties in that instance is infinite. So should be our payment uh, if we do not repent and trust in Jesus for our, our payment. Awesome. All right. Uh, same guy. Uh, question probably again here for you, Ross. Uh, the question is, did Jesus take on our suffering? Did he take on the suffering of people in hell? If so, how does Jesus take on infinite suffering from hell? So I would hold to, uh, I'm reformed in my perspective. And, um, uh, so I would actually hold to a limited atonement. I would only believe that uh, the propitiation of Jesus actually made the elect or all those who would repent and trust in Jesus for salvation, uh, only those people, their sins were uh, were atoned for. So it wouldn't be the, the unbelievers or anything like that, but I imagine I'm probably in the minority uh, in this discussion on the chat as well, but the limited atonement would answer that, I think, in a coherent way where maybe you'd run into some weird questions with an unlimited atonement perspective where Jesus somehow atoned for the sins of people who would be annihilated forever. Uh, doesn't seem to make sense to me. Okay. Next question here is for Caleb from Frank Christian. He says, why did God create a place of eternal fire for the devil and his angels instead of just killing them? Uh, he references Matthew 25, 41, and he says, depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Yeah, well, the eternal fire would be um, God's destruction. So that would be the destruction of the devil and his angels, just like for sinners. So I would say that he does destroy them. Okay. Uh, just trying to find the next question here. So we keep going. Um, now, again, when I say these things, I'm saying this seems to be a plausible perspective. I'm not saying, like, dogmatically, I know the truth. That's right. I'm saying this is a reasonable perspective. Next question comes from Mez J. Uh, they say, if life is a gift from God, how can an unrepented sinner have the same assurance of life than a man of God? The punishment of for misusing life would be logically the withdrawal of it in existence. So I'm guessing this question here is for Ross. Right. Um, I mean, it's a good question. I think it might be mixing categories there. Uh, but uh, there are two words in the Greek New Testament for life. There's uh, zoe and uh, another one that is evading me right now, but zoe would be the spiritual kind of life and the other one is physical kind of life. So I think it's mixing categories there. Uh, the eternal life in the Gospel of John is something we as believers have now. Um, so I, th I think it's mixing categories. 
so the the unbeliever is never given the kind of eternal life that's in the gospel of john that we're talking about um whether they will be conscious is not all that's wrapped up in the new testament's idea of life or spiritual life sweet uh next question comes from theologia apologia he says uh as an apologist, the doctrine of hell is something we hear a lot as an objection to Christianity. To Ross, are you worried you are creating an unnecessary stumbling block to Christianity? Uh, I mean, it's certainly, it's, well, so this is again where theology would come into play. And I think I'm probably in the minority here, but I am uh, reformed in my perspective. I believe that uh, God will draw all of his people to himself. The Holy Spirit um, is powerful. Uh, can regenerate anyone and will lead his people to believe uh, correct teachings on this on this kind of stuff. So it is very offensive to unbelievers. As an apologist, I actually talk about uh, hell sometimes. I think uh, recently I had a conversation with uh, Mr. Bear the Atheist on Modern Day Debate about um, ev evangelizing to um, indigenous peoples and also had a conversation with uh, the, at the Nevermore Tavern with, uh, he's not an atheist, he's a secular Buddhist. And I'm, I bring hell up all the time. Uh, they may be offended by it, but uh, it is, it, well, <laughs> I guess it's up for debate here. But from my perspective, it is the truth. And I want them to know the truth uh, desperately. I want them to believe the truth desperately. Um, so I want to, I think, hell has been used historically in the church as a good motivation for people to turn from their sin. Uh, Spurgeon's, uh, Spurgeon's story of conversion included that kind of thing, his fear. Uh, Luther as well, his conversion story included things of the fear of God and his eternal punishment. So I think it's a good place to go to. Uh, I mean, the, the perfect example would be Jesus, right? Jesus talked way more about hell than he did about heaven. Uh, if he was... I, I don't think that we could come beside Jesus and criticize him for, hey, Jesus, aren't you like saying some pretty harsh stuff here? Shouldn't you be lowering the bar? Like, don't you want as many people to, uh, to pray or pray or forgiveness as possible? Uh, I think the apostles' example and Jesus' example is to preach the whole truth, uh, even the, the parts that we may be a little bit uncomfortable out or don't like talking about. Um, one, because it's true, and two, because it can provide good motivation for someone to, to fear God and to turn from their sin. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, next question comes from Ms. J. Uh, they say, when Adam was punished to, quote, return to dust, does it make sense to say that he continued to exist but in torment, or rather that he ceased to exist as he was before? So I'm guessing, again, a question for Ross here. Uh. I mean, I would certainly say we get much more clarity in Revelation uh, past Genesis 3. I think we understand a lot more about eschatology uh, after the revelation of the New Testament than we did after Genesis 3. Um, I think there it's more of the, the parallelism in the structure of the story that they came from dust and that they're returning from dust. I don't think it's necessarily wise to read that as some kind of uh, eschatological statement. Um, it, in equal clarity with that of the New Testament. Um, but I, if it's possible, Caleb, could you jump in here and clarify what you're, I, I can't believe I never asked you this, but do you believe that um, after a person dies, 
that they are in a place of conscious existence or are they in a place of unconscious existence? Is it different for a believer and an unbeliever? Uh, can you just clarify on that? Yeah, I would I would lean towards the view that it's a conscious existence. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I recognize that's a little bit difficult because it's like, what is the an unsaved doing? Um, but yeah, I would say that there, it's a conscious existence. And that, but well, I guess it could be that God does annihilate them and then resurrects them. But at least for the saved, it's conscious because I would say, you know, they go to to heaven and the beatific vision or purgatory awaiting the resurrection but but yeah but you wouldn't see something like luke 16 uh with the parable of the rich man and lazarus you wouldn't see that as like uh illustrative of the intermediary state um i mean because he's making that statement he's he's trying to talk to abraham and lazarus while his brothers are still alive so i would understand that kind of description of his torment there as uh conscious existence of an unbeliever after death would you agree or what, what would you say? Yeah, it does give that implication. Now, I do look at it as a parable, so it's hard to know what to draw from it. But, but yeah, it, it does seem the straightforward reading is that it's a, a conscious existence before the resurrection. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry, Zach. I didn't mean to. I messed up the I messed up the form here. Yeah. Gosh. Come on, man. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You're all good. I blew uh, it. <laughs> You're never invited back now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love reform people. They're so much fun. Uh, next question comes from Theologia Apologia. Uh, I love saying that name. He says to the dry apologist, Caleb, what role does your view play in evangelism and missions? As far as our atheist friends go, they already think they're going to be annihilated, so to speak. Yeah, that's a good point. So, well, you could emphasize that it could be a very painful annihilation, but also, you know, it's still possible. There's a, you know, help, but I wouldn't um, push, I wouldn't, um, well, that's possible. I wouldn't argue that point, of course, but, um, but I would just say, you know, teaching them or emphasizing to them the goodness of heaven. Now, I know some of them don't acknowledge that. I don't really know what else we can say to them though, if they don't want to go to heaven and they don't care about being annihilated, um, you know, at some point, I don't know what else we can say to them. I don't know that emphasizing the torture of hell is going to do it. And if I don't believe that that's God's character, I don't want to misrepresent um, him, even if that does have some pragmatic view in mind either. So. Alrighty. Next question again comes from Mess J. They say, how could not be the quote, like a, fire unquote in revelation a symbol if the things that are thrown there are clearly immaterial things like demons and satan and impersonal things like death and hades uh i don't know i assume that's for me um yeah. so uh i don't i mean i don't view it as a literal lake of fire uh it's possible that it's that way but i mean revelation is full of symbols and allusions to the old testament it's the the of the books of the new testament it references the old testament more than any um not with any direct quotations but with allusions so <clears throat> i wouldn't necessarily uh you know die on the hill of that there has to be an actual lake of fire in revelation but the 
I think the idea there in Revelation 20 is clear that there's going to be torment. Um, and I don't know why the fact that uh, demons and Satan are not physical things like you and I, uh, I, I don't know why that would mean it's symbolic or that torment would be symbolic of annihilation or destruction or cessation of existence. I don't know that that necessarily follows. And uh, the, the picture there of death and Hades being destroyed because they no longer exist, right? That intermediate state of, of Hades and the physical experience we have of death are no longer going to exist. Now it's only this lake of fire experience. I don't know why that would necessarily be symbolic in uh, and having it the strength to get rid of the idea of torment. I, I don't see how that follows from the question, though it is an interesting question. Alrighty. Uh, we have a couple questions left here. If you have any questions that you want to add, we probably will have a few minutes to squeak those in if you want to put those in the live chat. Uh, but for now, next question comes from Daniel Boone again that says, how important should this topic be for Christians? So I'm guessing this question would obviously be for both of you. Mm -hmm. You want to go first, Caleb? Yeah, sure. You can go. Okay. Oh, um, you yeah, you can go. <laughs> All right. Um, so it's difficult. I think uh, I have a lot more brotherly sympathy. I don't know if that's the right word for Caleb's position um, where like there's annihilation and there's uh, at least it seems like there's room for some kind of punishment. I have a lot more respect for that position than someone who denies hell in a different way, like a universalist. Um, that would be a deal breaker for me. Someone who says that, uh, every person eventually will be reconciled into heaven. I think that's much, makes me much more uncomfortable, makes me much more suspicious about their, uh, you know, about their salvation, about the presence of the Holy Spirit within them. Um, the, the debate between nihilationism and ECT is important. I think it's certainly important, but I don't think it's necessarily something that we should get on boxing gloves and go out into the parking lot over um, I don't, th if, if I was a pastor of a church, which I'm not technically, I don't think I would, uh, take the fellowship of a person in my congregation if they were an annihilationist. I don't think it's to the level of like a Trinitarian heresy or, uh, you know, uh, I don't think it's to the level of even other disagreements that Caleb and I would have about, um, justification and, and sanctification and that kind of stuff. So it's important, but it's not of the level of other uh, definitional things. Yeah, I think that it is a pretty important topic because not only can it be a stumbling block, as it was mentioned earlier, when we're um, reaching out to non-Christians, but Christians can have mental anxiety over the justice of hell and somebody doesn't have to hold to annihilationism, of course, but I think uh, putting it forward as a reasonable option, I think can alleviate some concerns, which is you know, why I think that more churches and particularly the church I'm a part of, I hope will be more open-minded about the idea as a real possibility, especially when it seems like scripture may very well teach it. And, you know, some church fathers may have taught that as well and so on, but, um, yeah, so that's what I would say on that. Awesome. Again, another question here from Daniel Boone. They say, Ross says hell is an effective evangelistic tactic. Couldn't 
this have the opposite effect now since people are less religious? Is it safe to use this as an evangelistic topic? I think it would definitely, um, well, again, this is where our theological convictions come into play again. I'm not necessarily looking for the most effective evangelistic tactic. That's not always my main concern. Uh, like I, I'm not William Lane Craigie in my evangelism, uh, looking for the low bar, like the, to uh, take out the least uh, offensive things possible to get people into the, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a mere Christianity kind of guy, let's say. So I'm not necessarily looking for the most effective uh, things. I think that the spirit of God can save anyone whom he chooses to save. Um, but I do agree. I do agree that, I mean, when you look at uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, where he's just using these just amazing, if you ever get a chance to read that sermon, it's not terribly long. Uh, I mean, you'll feel, you feel terrible listening to it. The people who are listening to him preach that sermon were clutching the clutching the columns in their in their building. They were uh, they were almost passing out because they were so terrified, so overwhelmed by the description of of hell. That's probably not going to happen if you start preaching uh, in most churches today because we're so materialistic in our nature. We're so uh, you know scientific. We're so naturalistic that it's a lot less. For at least for Western people, I think it's a lot less effective than it used to be. Um, however, it's still the truth of Scripture, and I think this truth of Scripture still has to be used. And I, I think it's loving for people to tell someone of the of the horrors of their decisions, what is coming for them if they continue in their ways. I think it's the loving thing to do to tell them, uh, and it's the true thing. And I trust the rest to the spirit of God. Uh, I can't change anybody's heart. Um, you know, even with my wonderful expressions, like, uh, like Daniel Goon has pointed out, they, they can't even do the job. I, I trust God for that kind of stuff. Awesome. All right. This is going to be our last question here. Unless I see something pop up last minute from Daniel Boone. Again, it, he says, uh, what books do you each recommend on the topic? Uh, Caleb, why don't you uh, suggest something? Yeah, so I'm pulling something up because I forgot the full title. But, you know, the thing that honestly pushed me towards it, and it'll be controversial as well. I mean, Bart Ehrman's recent book, Heaven and Hell, because he's an outsider, and I know he's controversial, but um, yeah, I think he kind of calls it as he sees it, and he makes a pretty strong case that, you know, the Bible teaches annihilationism, and that's um, a pretty good, or I mean, it's, it's a strong resource, whether you agree with all of it or not. And then there's the Catholic Reading Guide to Conditional Immortality by Robert Wilde. It was another source that I consulted. That's kind of a catalog of different statements. And, you know, I believe he's a Catholic priest, and he argues that annihilationism is compatible with church teaching. So those would be two books I would recommend. Um, I mean, I would definitely, I, pl I plan on at some point reading Irma's book, though I would advise people to be careful because of the perspective he's coming from. Uh, he doesn't have a, a view of the New Testament that allows for any kind of unified doctrine. Uh, or, I mean, he doesn't believe that 
you know, Matthew wrote Matthew or, or any stuff like that. So I would be just keep that in mind when you read Ehrman. I'm not saying don't read him, just saying keep in mind that he's coming from a skeptical perspective. He's keeping he's coming from the uh, point of view that the New Testament is not an inspired uh, document or anything like that. Um, but uh, four views on hell would be a, a good one. Uh, Steve Gregg has lots of stuff about these difficult uh, topics. Like he's got books on um, end times view that, and uh, and he's got four views on hell. So I would definitely recommend that. And it, it offers like parallel commentary with the four views, so you can see how each of them are dealing with passages and how each of them respond to their arguments. So that's definitely a great resource. Uh, if you want a more concise uh, explanation, there are probably about like 10 or so pages in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. That would give you a, uh, a shorter introduction to the topic. That would be a good one. Uh, but those are, two, those are two resources that I would recommend. Uh, definitely, definitely the four views on hell would be very helpful for someone. Uh, yeah. All right. Awesome. That is all the questions we have. We got through them. So we will transition here to closing statements. Also at the timer for five minutes. Uh, Caleb, since you began, do you mind starting us off with closing statements? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Zach, thanks for hosting and Ross for dialogue with me. Um, yeah, so again, I don't hold to this view dogmatically, but I do think it's the most plausible interpretation, especially of what um, Jesus said and I think that we should at least be open-minded to, you know, that that's what's being taught in scripture. And especially if it offers a more just portrayal um, of God and that helps somebody, um, I think that, you know, people should be open-minded to that. And um, that's pretty much it. I know I've made some points that require further clarification in their own debate and such, but I know we talked a lot about, or some about like progressive revelation and such, and basically my, Again, my perspective there is that, you know, the substance of teaching remains the same through scripture and church teaching, but, you know, the sec the nature of that teaching can get clarified and, you know, like the exist, you know, like how scripture clarifies, I would argue like monotheism and the afterlife and such over its pages and the same thing can happen within the church on hell. So. <clears throat> Oh, sorry, Zach. I think you were muted for that. Whoops. I always do that. Like once per live stream, I always forget that I'm muted. But I just said, all right, we got five, I'll set five minutes and you can wrap us up here, Ross. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, yeah, I just want to say thank you again to, to Caleb, and especially Zach, for offering to host this. Uh, sometimes it can be pretty irritating to try and track down a host, but uh, it was it was so helpful for you to just like volunteer like that. It made our lives easy. And uh, Caleb is always is a great conversation partner, a great debater. Uh, I really appreciate talking to him about things that we disagree about. Um, and we're in luck because we disagree about a lot of things. So we'll have plenty of conversations for the future, Caleb, to enjoy together. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to close and just kind of summarize a couple things um, that I've talked about before and just kind of hammer home some some takeaways that I've got for this. Uh, I, I just want to say again that if you take the entirety of the New Testament, um, <clears throat> There are certainly verses that sound like they're talking about destruction, whether that destruction is cessation of existence or not, I think uh, needs to be explained still. But it, taking the entirety of the New Testament, uh, passages, again, like Re Revelation 20 and uh, the uh, 
uh, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus's description of the afterlife, the most consistent reading to me seems to be, and it has been to most of the Christians who have possessed the spirit of God over 2000 years, the most consistent reading seems to be that there will be an eternal conscious torment of, uh, of individuals who rebel against God in this life. Uh, I, I think that's the best interpretation of all of the New Testament scriptures. And, and I just think it makes intuitive sense. Uh, again, to bring up a man, an, an evil, vile man like Paul Pot, who just tortured people, was one of the worst human beings this planet has ever produced. So picture this guy, picture Paul Pot, uh, killing 25% of the people who he was supposed to care for. Uh, over to, uh, around 2 million people under the estimates in, in brutal fashion, brutal fashion, uh, children and families and, and women of the whole, the whole lot. So he lives to a ripe old age of 73 years old, uh, never faces trial for anything he's done. He's uh, never apprehended by any international council and made to pay for the things that he's done. So he dies at the ripe old age of 73, much longer than most people in Cambodia live or at least lived in the, in the time he was alive. So he's uh, perhaps unconscious, perhaps somewhere. Then he is resurrected at uh, final judgment, and he stands before God, and he's annihilated, and he ceases to exist. Uh, that just doesn't seem to me like, uh, that just doesn't seem to me to be consistent with a God who says, no, 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 don't take vengeance on yourself. I'm going to take vengeance. I'm going to make these things right. It doesn't seem proportional to me. It sounds like Paul Pot gets off easy. It sounds like uh, he barely has to pay for his punishment at all. Um, he may have a bad day, you know, standing in line or however it works at the at the judgment seat, and then getting obliterated, which may be unpleasant. But it seems to me that the just thing to do would be for Paul Pot to suffer uh, eternal consequences, everlasting consequences, everlasting torment um, with the restraining hand of grace from God removed seems to me that that would be the just thing to do um, rather than to just let him off easy and uh, for his consciousness to cease. That's what it seems to me. Um, especially when you consider that while he's in hell, he's still going to be hating God. He's still going to be hating his neighbor. He's not going to suddenly become a good person who's uh, deserving of the grace of God. He's going to get worse and worse as God's restraining hand of grace is removed. So I don't see at any point uh, where God would be justified in letting him off the hook. I think, uh, especially considering the severity and the, the holiness and the perfection of God's law, which Paul Pot offended for 73 years, um, it blasphemed the name of Jesus. I, I just can't see, can't see the annihilation perspective consistent. And then I just lastly want to say uh, uh, to Caleb, I just don't think that you can be a consistent Roman Catholic and hold to annihilationism. I think eventually one of those things are going to have to go. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you disagree with me, but I think that uh, your worldview is in contradiction there. I think one of those things are going to have to go. And uh, it seems to me that you're much more apt to the, uh, well, to the Protestant side of things where we let the scripture stand on its own merit rather than um, ecclesiastical authority telling us how we have to interpret things. I think you're much more aligned with that kind of perspective. So I hope to see you on our side at some point. <laughs> <laughs> 
Alrighty. Uh, great job wrapping that up. Uh, before we sign off here, Caleb, if anyone wants to f- follow you and your work, how do they follow what you're doing? Yeah, um, I can be reached on Twitter at Dry Apologist or my YouTube channel at Dry Apologist. Short and sweet. What about you, Ross? <laughs> awesome. Uh, and you can find me on Facebook at Burns Eye View if you just check that in the search bar. Uh, I would love for you to like my page and you know watch some of my stuff on there. Uh, Twitter as well. I like to annoy people from other perspectives. I don't annoy Christians that much on Twitter, <laughs> but I like to annoy atheists a lot. So. Uh, if you're if you're interested in some of that back and forth taking place, just Burns Eye View or Ross Burns, my name on Twitter, you can find me. And then on YouTube as well, definitely check out, uh, subscribe if you um, if you feel any pity for me. Um, that would be that would be very kind of you. And check out my videos on there. Yeah, I encourage everyone that's listening to subscribe to both these guys on the YouTube. The link to all their stuff is in the description of this video if you're watching with us on YouTube. But that's it for. Our- for everything today. Appreciate you guys. That was a great discussion. Thanks for coming on. All right, we're going to sign off. I'll see you guys next time.